Good morning, church. Hallelujah. Christ indeed has risen. Yeah, I said it backwards, didn't I? I'm used to doing your part, Bob. What a glorious today, day today is when we celebrate that the tomb is empty and Jesus, not figuratively, not just in a storybook, but literally, he's alive. He's alive. We don't worship a dead carpenter, but a risen king. The grave couldn't hold him, and the cross didn't defeat him. He is alive. He rose from the dead, as, and as the passage that Bob read from Luke's gospel says, he is alive today. This morning, as we continue to celebrate the resurrection, I want us to consider the implications of that. What are the implications of that resurrection for our life today? And I want to do that by looking at the Apostle Paul's explanation of the resurrection as he wrote to the Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you hear a scratch in my throat, it's all good. All right, it's all good. There's a little pollen outside, and it is March Madness, so perhaps it's that. But we pray that that will not be a distraction for anyone this morning. These last three Sundays, we have been looking at the final week of Jesus' earthly life, his work here on earth. Three weeks ago, we looked at Monday of the week when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, into this city. For the final time, he came into Jerusalem, paraded as the son of David, paraded as in as the king of the Jews. A couple of weeks ago, we watched as as Jesus, we, we saw this portrait of his humility as he tied a towel around his waist and bended his knee and he washed his disciples' feet just days before he would be betrayed by one of them. And then last Sunday, we watched in that upper room as he celebrated the last Passover meal and instituted for the church the Lord's Supper. A couple of days ago on Good Friday, We soberly and silently beheld the cross, and we watched as Jesus was nailed to that cross, and as he died on that cross, and as his lifeless body was put into a borrowed tomb, but this morning we celebrate has arisen. And in this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses what the implications of that are. Not only for the first century Corinthians who received this letter, but for believers today, you and I today as well, the implications of this great news that we celebrate this morning. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read from verse 12 down through verse 23. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Would you pray with me? Our Father, what a glorious day today is. We are so thankful for that third day. We are so thankful that the New Testament church gets to gather every third day, every Sunday, to celebrate that the tomb is empty, to celebrate that the Messiah that you sent, your only Son, the pre-existent Christ, yes, was put to death, but no, did not stay that way. But in fact, defeated sin and death by rising from the grave, defeating our greatest enemies forever for those who would put their faith in Christ. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And doubly so, this year, Father, we return thanks to you for the privilege that we have of gathering physically to worship you as a faith family. Thank you for this day, Lord. May we never take this for granted again. And Father, we ask that in, in this room and within the hearing of my voice and those at home. Father, if there be any who are apart from you, who have not placed 100% of their trust and their hope for rescue from judgment in you and your son Jesus, Father, may the glorious news of the gospel ring true to them this morning. And Father, may you bring them across the line of faith so that you might be worshiped and glorified by them. And God, those who have the privilege this morning of calling you Father, who have the privilege of claiming Christ as our Redeemer, may this glorious good news be made afresh to us this morning so that we might live for your glory as long as you put oxygen in our lungs. And may we long to see this risen Christ return again in glory. Draw our affections to you and your son Jesus by opening up this story to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, the apostle Paul gives the Corinthians three things that I want us to look at. 
First of all, he makes for them an assumption. Then he gives them a warning. And then finally, he gives them a hope. So first, there's the assumption that we find in verses 12 through 13. And the assumption is this. He tells the Corinthians, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he makes. That's his assumption. You already believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So there was a problem in the Corinthian church at this time. And the problem was that they had begun to deny the bodily resurrection of the dead. Not the resurrection of Christ, they believed in that. But the resurrection of believers who had died. The bodily resurrection of people. Now, the bodily resurrection of is not an exclusively New Testament doctrine. It's spoken about by the prophets of old. Job, in Job chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, in other words, after I've died, yet in my flesh I shall see God. The prophet Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We know that Jesus himself spoke about the resurrection from the dead in many places. One of those is in John chapter 5, verse 25, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And of course, we know that the apostles in the the letters in the New Testament wrote often about the resurrection of the dead. Some unto everlasting life, and unbelievers unto everlasting judgment and punishment. But these Corinthians in the Corinthian church had begun to deny the resurrection of the dead. As if to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's the son of God. I believe that he uh, is the only way for sinners to be rescued and given eternal life. I I believe in his death. I believe in his resurrection, but I just can't wrap my, ra- my mind around the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of people. So that was their hang-up. That was their hang-up. And Paul's point here is, in perfect logic, his point is, you can't have it both ways. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you can't deny the bodily resurrection of the dead. You can't have it both ways. Now, Paul had already established that the Corinthian believers did, in fact, believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the first eight verses of chapter 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So in other words, I preached a gospel to you. I preached good news to you, and you received it. You believe this good news. Well, what was that good news? What was that gospel? Verse 3 and 4. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so he, he has already established that this is the gospel I preached to you, and you believed it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is integral to the gospel. You accepted that. You believed that. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 8, and he begins a defense of the resurrection of Christ. It just in case there were some among them who didn't affirm the resurrection of Christ, he provides a defense of that belief. Look at verses 5 through 8. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul begins his defense of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead by appealing to their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's his assumption. He assumes, you guys believe in the resurrection of Christ, Now, perhaps that's not a safe assumption for us to make this morning in this room of everyone that's here. Perhaps there's some of you who are not yet convinced that that is true, that that Christ did rise from the dead, that that tomb is empty. Are you convinced of that? There are lots of proofs of the resurrection of Christ. And we don't have time to dive into all of them, but I would love to dialogue with you about that. If, if that's something that, that you're concerned about or you're, you're not able to wrap your mind around, I'd love to share with you more about that. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I just want to give you a foretaste of that. Just a couple of them. And, and one of them, one of the evidences that I want to speak about this morning that is, to me, unassailable is given explicitly by the Apostle Paul in this very passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And that is the abundance of credible eyewitness testimony. The abundance of credible eyewitness testimony. Any prosecuting attorney will tell you that pretty much anything other than eyewitness testimony is just circumstantial evidence. Now, circumstantial evidence is still evidence, and there is lots of circumstantial evidence to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But this one, this one's the clincher for me, this eyewitness testimony. Paul tells us in verse 6 that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So literally, hundreds of people within the hearing of the, the, the Corinthians Paul says, most of whom are still alive. You can go ask them. They testified, and their testimony is recorded for us in this historical book that they saw and touched the risen Christ. After he had died, after he was buried in a tomb, they saw the resurrected Christ. In fact, it is this abundance of eyewitness testimony that has led many to deny that Jesus ever died because they can't argue with eyewitness testimony that they saw him, that they touched him, and that they even ate breakfast with him as one gospel writer records for us. They can't argue with that, and so instead what they will say is, well, 
he must have survived Roman crucifixion, which is laughable because nobody ever survived Roman crucifixion. The Romans were experts at execution, especially execution by the cross. Now, prosecuting attorneys will also tell you that the credibility of eyewitness testimony is dependent on the credibility of the eyewitness himself. Because, after all, eyewitnesses do lie. They do lie sometimes. And so were these folks lying about the resurrection? Well, as you think about that, think of the 11 disciples. Think of those that we talked about last week who were there around the table as Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Of those 11 disciples, all of them, all of them, except for the apostle John, were executed because they refused to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it, and they believed it unto their death. Now, it's not unusual for people to be willing to die for a lie. We see that all the time. We all know about Islamic terrorists, that they are willing to die for a lie. But that's just it. They don't think it's a lie. They believe it to be true. And so while it's not unusual for men to be willing to die for a lie, if they think it's true, if they know it's a lie, they're not going to be willing to die for that. If they know it's a hoax, they will not be willing to die for that. And yet for each one of these apostles, except for the apostle John, who gets, he gets exiled on Patmos, and we'll, we'll read a letter beginning next week, the book of Revelation that God gave to him. And yet... Every single one of these guys besides him went to their death holding firmly to the conviction that no, Jesus isn't dead. He rose from the grave. All they had to do was recant. All they had to do was admit that it was a hoax. But they didn't because it wasn't. It wasn't a hoax. They are, in fact, reliable and credible eyewitnesses because what they saw was, in fact, the risen Christ. The other unassailable piece of evidence that proves the resurrection of Christ, and one that I think is also subtly hinted at in this passage, is the inability of Jesus' detractors to be able to produce the body. They just couldn't produce it. The very last thing that the Jewish leaders wanted on the streets of Jerusalem after Jesus died is for more people to say, yes, he was the Messiah, and start following him and believing in him as the Messiah, as the promised king of the Jews. But that's exactly what happened just within a few days. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And they were willing to do anything and everything in order to prevent that from happening. And there was one surefire way, one surefire way in order to quell that rebellion of Jesus' followers, and that was to produce his body. All you got to do is produce the body of Jesus. Say, here he is. Here's his dead body. He cannot be the Messiah because he did not rise from the dead. Here he is. If they had been able to do that, then, friend, we would not be here today. And Christianity itself would have been wiped out within a generation of Jesus' death. But obviously, it didn't die out. 
Why? Because they never could produce a body. They failed in providing the one piece of evidence that would have proven that the resurrection was a lie. And the reason they couldn't produce a body is because it wasn't there. The tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. And then he later ascended back to the Father. They couldn't produce a body because there wasn't a body to produce. There's lots of other evidences of the resurrection. That's just a taste. The overabundance of credible and reliable eyewitness testimony and the absolute failure of the Jewish leaders to provide a body, to produce a body. So are you convinced? Are you convinced that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're not, if you're not, praise the Lord, I am too. But if you're not, let me issue a challenge. Here's my challenge to you. For the next 30 days, read his book. Talk to him in prayer and ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him to reveal himself as the risen Savior. If, if he's just a dead carpenter in a grave in Palestine, then what's that going to hurt? But if instead he is the risen king, then this could change your life and your eternity. So my challenge to you is to, is to read his book. Start with the Gospel of Luke. Read, read the book of Luke. If you're a visitor this morning, you got a little welcome bag. There's a book in there called The Essential Jesus. That's basically a retelling of the Gospel of Luke. Read that book for 30 days. Pray to him for 30 days. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him if he really did rise from the dead to reveal that truth to you. And I would ask that you would also do me a favor. Let me know you're doing that. I would love to be praying for you. Take that contact card that's on the seat back in front of you. Write your name on it and say, I'm accepting the challenge. I'm accepting that. I would love to pray for you as you take that challenge. But friends, if we do believe in the resurrection, the rest of us have based everything on that, that that the tomb is empty and Jesus did rise from the dead. What are the implications of that truth and that what we hold to be our fact? What are the implications of that for our life today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives In order to answer that question, we return to our text and we pick up where we left off. So Paul uses this unassailable logic in verses 12 and 13. If Christ is proclaimed as rise from the dead, then how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then beginning with verse 14, he begins to deal with the implications of that. And this is where Paul gives his warning. And the warning is this, without the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. Without the resurrection, it all falls apart. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The Greek word for vain there means empty. It means empty. And if the resurrection of Jesus is a lie, then then Paul's preaching and my preaching and the preaching of every other pastor in every other, other pulpit around the world this morning that is proclaiming the resurrection of Christ is a colossal waste of time because it is empty. It is devoid of any truth or substance if Christ is still in the grave. Not only that, but Paul says our faith is in vain. 
Our faith in God, our, our faith in a redeemer, our faith in a rescuer is empty if Jesus is still in the, brave, in the grave. It's either an empty tomb or an empty faith. It's one or the other. He goes on in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, if Jesus is still in the grave, then not only is my preaching empty, but I'm a false prophet because I'm misrepresenting God. It gets even worse. Verses 16 and 17, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. So vanity means empty. Futile means completely ineffective. Worthless is how the New American Standard translates that word. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. That if Jesus is still in the tomb, then your faith in him is ineffectual. It's worthless. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. And your condition doesn't change. And so he, he concludes there, and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins if Christ is still in the grave. What incredibly bad news for everyone who has placed all their hope and trust and faith in Christ for rescue from sin. To hear that we are still in our sins. The weight of the condemnation for our sin is still heavy upon our shoulders. The Bible tells us that each of us not only sins, but we are in sin. We're not only people who sin, we are in fact sinners. Sinners who have rebelled against God. And the Bible further tells us that as a result of that, what we deserve from God is judgment and punishment forever. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What we earn, our wages for our rebellion against God is sin. And he wrote that to people who weren't dead. He wrote that to people who were alive physically. So he's not talking about physical death. He's talking there about spiritual death. Eternal separation from God is, are, are, are the wages of our rebellion against him. And there's nothing that we can do to change this hopeless condition of being eternally separated from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were sinners who deserve a sinner's judgment, and we can't do anything to change that because we're spiritually dead. This is our hopeless predicament apart from Christ. And friends, if Christ is still in the grave, that is still our hopeless predicament is what Paul is saying. And there's nothing that we can do to change it. And not only is that bad news for us, but that's also bad news for all those who have trusted in Christ and have died trusting in Christ. As he says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, those who have died, have perished. Not just physically, but spiritually. They are eternally separated from God. And so Paul concludes his argument that without the resurrection, Christianity falls apart by saying in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a depressing thought. What a depressing thought that, that of all the people in the world, we're to be pitied the most. 
if Christ is still in the grave? What a statement. Of all the pitiful conditions of mankind across the face of the globe, this includes those who are starving. This includes the diseased. This includes the orphan. This includes the abused. This includes those victims of natural disaster, the, the, the poor. Considering all of those and many others, no, it is we, we who have trusted in Christ for this life only, we are the ones who are most to be pitied if Christ is still in the grave. Why? Because not only have we based our hope for redemption and reconciliation and eternal life on a lie if Christ is still in the grave, but we've also given up this life as well. And so if Christ has not been raised, not only have we given given him this life, but we've given the next life to him as well. And so we are of all people most to be pitied. Thank goodness Paul doesn't stop there, right? Thank goodness there is a verse 20, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so now Paul gives his readers the third thing in this passage. So first there was the assumption, you say you believe in the resurrection. Secondly, he gives them the warning, without the resurrection, and everything falls apart. And then he gives them the hope in verses 20 through 23, and the hope is this, the resurrection of Christ is the linchpin that holds fast the future hope of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the linchpin that holds fast the future hope of our faith. You know what a linchpin is, right? We're told that a linchpin is something that, that is uh, someone or something that is critical, that's crucial to an organization or enterprise. But it also has a literal meaning in its etymology. Literally, it refers to a pin. It's a a pin that passes through the end of an axle that holds the wheel on. And if if that pin fails, then that wheel falls off the axle and that wagon or cart or whatever it is will go nowhere. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of Christianity. As we saw already in verses 14 through 19, if there is no resurrection, then Christianity itself falls apart. Like a wagon with no wheels, it's vanity, it's it's futility. But with the resurrection in place, like a strong, unbreakable linchpin, the wheel stays on. And so all of that vanity, all of that futility that Paul warns us about in verses 14 through 19 are of no consequence to us. Why? Because the wheel is firmly affixed to the axle because the linchpin of the resurrection did in fact happen. Now those who are under the curse of sin and death can be rescued, can be rescued from, by faith in this risen Christ. Those who trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later can be saved from what they deserve because of their rebellion. They can be rescued. We, the unrighteous, the categorical unrighteous and incapable of achieving righteousness. Why? Because we're spiritually dead and we can't be righteous. We are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ who himself lived the only life of righteousness that was ever lived. 
He lived the perfect life that we never could, achieving a righteousness that we could never earn. And by faith in Jesus Christ, this righteousness gets credited to our account such that we who are unholy, we who are rebels, we become justified to stand in his presence. Not because of our goodness, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness, the pearly white righteousness of Jesus Christ, which clothes us in glory because of faith in the risen Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. That means he, he, he was delivered up to the cross for our trespasses, for our sins, to pay the price that we deserve, and he was raised for our justification. He was risen, he rose from the dead for our justification. But here's the thing. None of that is effectual if Christ is still in the grave. None of that accomplishes anything if that tomb in Palestine still holds the body of that dead carpenter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so that changes everything. And all these things are true. Sin and death are defeated for all those who trust in Christ alone. Now what Paul says to the Romans is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus through faith. And those who come to him in saving faith and repentance of sin are clothed with his righteousness and are justified and are reconciled and are redeemed and are saved from the judgment and the punishment that they deserve. And Paul in this passage here He closes the loop on the Corinthian question, the question that they've been wrestling with. Having articulated the the implications of the resurrection for the living, he now gives them the implications of the resurrection for those who are already dead, which is what they were confused about. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. The, word, the phrase first fruits there refers to literally the first of the harvest. Out of the harvest, that which comes first and that which is representative of what will come next. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. His comes first chronologically, but also his resurrection is an example of ours. It, it represents our resurrection to come, the resurrection of believers. His resurrection points to ours and encourages us that, that one day soon we too will, will receive a resurrected body. And so his resurrection is a promise of our resurrection. As we sang earlier, what a foretaste of our deliverance. Christ in power resurrected. It points to that. It is a promise of our resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on in verses 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so Adam is our federal head in sin and death, but Jesus is our federal head in the resurrection. Jesus, for all believers, is our federal head in righteousness and eternal life. And then he says 
in closing in verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus' resurrection points to our own resurrection. That one day this ascended and risen king will return again in glory. And when he does, those who have placed their hope in Christ will likewise be resurrected. And the confidence of this future hope is rock solid. It is secure because the linchpin is in place. The grave is empty, but the throne is not. Jesus, our King, the one who on Monday entered into this city, entered into Jerusalem, the one who on Friday was crucified and died, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And friend, he will come again in glory. And when he does, we who know him by faith, who love him, who serve him, who have trusted in him and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later as our only hope to be rescued from the penalty we deserve, will likewise rise from our graves and be reunited with him as he lives and reigns as king. So how do we respond to this incredible news? There are a myriad of applications for this to our lives. I want to give you just three. First, friend, if you have not trusted in Christ to rescue you from the judgment that you now see you deserve because of your sins against him, my exhortation to you this Easter Sunday is to trust in Christ alone as your only hope. You have no hope of escaping that judgment, that eternal punishment apart from Christ. But by trusting in Jesus Christ, you escape that judgment because then for you, Christ was crucified for you. He paid the price for your sins. So who will pay the price for yours? You or the Lord Jesus Christ? And so I implore you, if you have not trusted in him, come to faith in Christ this morning. Secondly, worship Christ with your life. If you've trusted Jesus to save you, if you've trusted in Christ alone to save you, and you're still here, you're still breathing, then that means that God is not done with you yet. And while I can't tell you, unfortunately, all of the specifics of God's will for your life, I can tell you without a doubt that it, it includes two very important things. First, his glory, and secondly, your holiness. His glory and your holiness. If he hasn't called you home yet, it's because he's still working on you. And Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who, he who brought you to faith in, in his son Jesus, he who gave you new life in Christ, he who saved you is working on you. He intends to make you holy. That's his intent. Not just positionally before Christ, but practically in your life as you live. He intends to conform you to the image of his son Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. And he will use anything and everything in life in order to accomplish that. But here's the thing. 
his working in your life to perfect you and to make you look more like his son, that's how he intends to glorify himself through your life. And because of the resurrection, we can know that this work of conforming us to the image of Jesus will, in fact, be completed. And so the exhortation for us is to press on, to press on in our walk with Jesus, daily surrendering to this work of perfecting us and changing us to look more like Jesus. This is your greatest means of worshiping this risen Christ. And don't we want to worship him? Isn't that our greatest desire? Because we know that the grave is empty, because we know of what he accomplished on Friday night, we know that he deserves all glory, all honor, and all praise from us and from our life. So let us worship Christ with our life in response to this. And then finally, hope in Christ in your death. Hope in Christ in your death. Because the tomb is not empty, or because the tomb is empty, and Jesus is not there, we know that this life is not all there is. That there is another land beyond the grave, our homeland. Our true citizenship is there. And we know that our king awaits until that appointed hour when he will return. And Paul closes out this very chapter with these words. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so I close with that exhortation to you as well. My beloved brothers and sisters, as a result of what he's accomplished for us and the fact that the grave is empty, be steadfast. Be immovable in your faith. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, whatever work he puts your hand to. Knowing and being convinced that in the Lord your labor is not in vain because the grave is empty but the throne is not. Let's pray. Oh God, what a glorious day today is. We thank you so much. We thank you for your perfect plan. And we thank you for putting your plan into action on that first Christmas morning when you sent your son, the preexistent Christ, the second person of the Trinity from your perfect side, from a place of comfort and glory to live among the muck and mire of sinful humanity. And while here to live a perfect life, something that we could never do, we could never achieve the righteousness that is required to be in your presence, Lord, but your son did. And then he offered that righteousness to us when he went willingly, voluntarily, obediently to the cross And he gave up his spirit, put to death by the sins of those whom he came to save. 
Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your glorious plan. But, Father, we're so grateful that the plan included your son rising from the dead. He paid the price on Friday night, and we got the receipt on Sunday morning. We got the receipt through an empty tomb, an empty grave, that tells to us that the payment has been made in full. And, Father, by faith, we take that receipt and we say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it, but we thank you for it. And now we want to live a life that is a way of thanking you for that. We we want to live a life transformed by this good news for your glory. Oh God, glorify yourself in this church. Glorify yourself in our lives. We ask in faith. Father, we know that there are those among us who don't know you in this way. Maybe they're investigating your claims. Maybe they're checking out what Jesus is all about. Or, or Lord, maybe perhaps they're trying to make themselves good enough. Oh, Lord, show them the folly of that. and Show them the glory of your son Christ. Show them the way that has been made through him. Died, crucified, buried, and risen again. We ask in Jesus' name that you would walk them across the line of faith. Give them new life in Jesus. Transform them into your children and your worshipers. And may you be glorified by them and us until you come back and call us home. We thank you for this good news, Father. Help us to live in light of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.